I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the US election special. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. I'm Ben Horton, Communications Manager and co-host of Undercurrents. And we're speaking today at 9am in the UK on the 6th of November 2020. And that's important because we're here today to talk about the ongoing US election. Obviously, voters went to the polls on the 3rd of November to decide who would be the next US president. And we don't have a decision yet. And obviously, we've all been sort of glued to our TV screens ever since. And we're emerging bleary eyed into the weekend to work out what the state of play is. And I'm really delighted that I'm joined by two expert colleagues to discuss the significance of this election and what's been going on. With us today, we've got friend of the podcast, Dr. Leslie Vinger-Murray, Director of the US and America's Programme at Chatham House and Dean of our Queen Elizabeth II Academy for Leadership in International Affairs. And also Professor Michael Cox, who is an Associate Fellow with the US and America's Programme and the Founding Director of LSE Ideas. Thank you both for joining me. Leslie, I just wonder if we could start with you. As I said, this is a sort of evolving picture, but we're speaking at 9am on Friday, 6th of November. Please, could you tell us the current state of play as it stands, what's happened so far, and why has it taken so long for us to get a result in this election? It has been the most extraordinary election, I think, in a generation. We we knew it would be the most consequential. We didn't know for sure that it would turn out to be quite so extraordinary in terms of the unfolding It's an election that's taking several days to finalize for one very clear reason, which is the number of mail-in ballots has been extraordinarily high because of the pandemic. The Democrats clearly encouraged voting by mail, and it's it's an option that millions of Americans have taken up. It's something that it's challenging for those people counting the votes. There are some states where they've never used paper before. So this is an extraordinary operation and they're conducting it in the middle of a pandemic where yesterday alone, 1,108 Americans tragically died. So the context is the story and it's really, really fundamental. The second thing is, you know, America's tremendously polarized. So While it's not actually an especially close vote right now at the popular level, we have more than 4 million Americans. There's a 4 million gap, right? Biden is up by more than 4 million votes. So it's not actually especially close. But as we all know, this is not about the popular vote. This takes place state by state by state. There are different laws in every state. There are different turnouts in every state. And it's being fought in the battleground state. So where are we right now? We are looking at Arizona where Vice President Biden is 47,000 votes ahead and the votes are still being counted. And at 6 p.m. on Friday, that's today, we will have an update from Arizona. We are waiting on Nevada. Those two states, if my numbers are right, would get Vice President Biden to 270. We're also looking at Georgia, where Donald Trump is ahead by only 463 votes. This is a red state. This is absolutely extraordinary. And the reason is because A, the turnout, not only in Georgia, but across the nation is amazing. More than 
146 million votes have already been counted. We are on track for the greatest voter turnout since 1900. And it looks like the majority of those votes that are coming in or a higher percentage of the votes that are coming in by mail-in ballot are exactly as we anticipated the Democratic votes. So on election day, it looked very different than it does right now. So we're waiting on Georgia. And of course, we're waiting on Pennsylvania. And we knew we would be waiting on Pennsylvania at the moment. President Trump is ahead the margin continues to shrink and all of the projections are that the greater number of votes coming in are on the Democratic side and people anticipate that Vice President Biden will emerge ahead in Pennsylvania. So it's a battleground state story. We knew that would be the case. We knew it would be the case that it would take quite a number of days if it came down, especially to Pennsylvania. And we knew that it would begin to look more blue over time. And yet we found it very unsettling. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for that overview. And I wondered if you could also maybe sketch out for us what we can expect to see over the next few days. Obviously, neither candidate, as we're speaking, has conceded. Donald Trump is still claiming that he's won the election. Biden is sort of stressing patience. And the results are going to continue to come in through today and and into the weekend. But going forward, what's the process for those of us outside of the US? How does this election get decided? And what are we likely to see in the months leading up to inauguration? We're going to continue to see the votes being counted even after the election has been called. The voting will continue to be counted. and, And that's important, right? Because we need to understand who turned out how they voted. We want to understand the trends. We want to understand the margins. So what we're hearing from every single person in charge, officially in charge at the state level, is we will count every single vote. We are absolutely committed to counting all votes. This is not what we're hearing from the president of the United States. And I think this is incredibly important context, and it's what we need to watch in the days ahead. The president of the United States is making it very clear that he sees this as fraudulent, that the voting should stop, that the vote counting should be stopped in Pennsylvania. And he's making very, very strong allegations. The speech that he made last night to the American public was one of the most disturbing that we've ever seen from a president in the United States. And NBC and ABC took it down partway through. They did not cover the entire speech. And many on the Republican side also called that speech out. So nonetheless, it's not entirely clear which state will decide this presidency. It could be that at 6 p.m. we hear from Arizona and it's a very clear result for Vice President Biden. That's not obviously the case yet. Maricopa County is, you know, at one point looked better for Trump. That plus Nevada could come in later today and we could have a decision. I think the cleaner result is Pennsylvania, which could take more time because I think the margins will be greater. But, you know, when we listen to the official from Pennsylvania speak yesterday, she was very clear Mm -hmm. that they will continue counting the votes and they will only tell us a result when they have it. So it might be later today. But when I say later today, I'm thinking in American hours. If Georgia becomes the state that really tells us where things are going, uh, it it isn't really going to end the election because Georgia is going to be so close that it's inevitably going to go to a recount. So, you know, we're looking at later today. I think people are really looking at Pennsylvania. 
but obviously Arizona makes a difference. I, w- I want to say one more thing, which is really interesting and, and it's personal to me. If this comes down to Arizona plus Nevada, right? Arizona goes takes us from 253 to 264 and Nevada takes you up the rest. The only reason we get to 270 is because Nebraska, the second district in Nebraska, which is basically Omaha, Nebraska and surrounding areas, split from the rest of the state and gave Vice President Biden one electoral college vote. It's also significant because of all the battleground states, it's witnessed the biggest swing, well over 8% from the Republican votes to the Democrats. That's a tremendous swing in the heartland of America that could actually be the vote that decides the election. The second interesting thing about that is they did reelect, that district did reelect their Republican congressmen. So this was a decision it looks like about President Trump, not about America changing. This is about President Trump. You know, a lot of what we're hearing about the election is that part of what's happening, there are a lot of things happening. Part of what's happening is that the moderates and the Republican Party have moved to Biden. The moderate voters are moving, right? That moderate middle is saying we want a moderate America and Vice President Biden is moderate and President Trump is not looking very moderate to a lot of people. Leslie, thank you. So I'd like to delve a bit deeper into the factors that have been influencing the voting in this election. I wonder, uh, Michael Cox, if you'd like to come in on this. From what we've seen so far, I mean, there are many exit polls and a lot of speculation about what has been influencing voters at the moment, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the state of the economy, whether it is a referendum on, on Donald Trump's leadership. What do you think at this early stage has, what's your take on this, I suppose? Yeah, Well, I think the first thing to say more generally and widening the discussion a wee bit, let's be perfectly honest, Trump has done a lot better than anticipated. If we look at all the pre-election anticipations, clearly many, some, not me, and I'm certain not Leslie, probably believe that Biden could have a sweep. And that would also drag in behind the Senate. Now, that has not happened. And I think a word of caution, Trump has clearly embedded himself in a very large part of the American electorate and within the hearts and minds and pockets, if you like, of a very large number of Americans. And somebody said the other day, many of them, although some did switch, as Leslie said, many of them would walk over glass for Donald Trump. So we are left with a legacy, nonetheless, notwithstanding Trump's statements about the fraudulent character of the election, putting all that to one side, we're still left with something called Trumpism. And that is a legacy which president, whoever is going to be going forward, you know, is going to have to deal with. There's a very large electorate out there. There's a very large number of people out there, millions, you know, who kind of believe in Donald Trump, believe in what he's been saying and doing. And it's going to be a huge degree of statesmanship on behalf of Vice President Biden to deal with the other America, those who did not vote for him. And I think one of the positive things coming out of this election are the statements that Joe Biden has said, that he's going to rule for all Americans. And I think that's an extraordinarily positive thing and a necessary thing for him to say. The other thing I'd say just on Congress, because we haven't mentioned it so far, you know, the Democrats have not done as well as as anticipated. And we are going to face a problem The House is fine, of course, although I think a couple of seats have been lost. But the Senate was the key. And it looks, as far as I know, and and Leslie will know more about this, we don't know, that in a way, you know, the Senate is not going to go. So there's going to be 
a divide there, a problem there. However, on the other hand, and this brings Biden back into the campaign, Biden, you know, has a very good relationship with the Senate. He knows the Senate very well being vice president. You know, he knows Mitch McConnell. He's worked with Mitch McConnell before. So that could also be a positive going forward. But on the more general material, and I'll leave this more to Leslie to deal with because she's the real expert. Well, I mean, what does it tell us? Well, Trump has done better. Was it the pandemic? Well, of course, in some senses, it was all about the pandemic. On the other hand, what was interesting about this election is how little the pandemic seems to have figured in the voting behavior of certain people. They look back to what President Trump did last year with the economy. You know, they've looked back on, on things that they think have been a success for Donald Trump. And I think, in a sense, Trump has been quite shrewd, to be perfectly honest, to push the debate as far away from the pandemic as possible and more towards what he thinks are the negatives of the Democrats or what he calls a sleepy Joe. Did the economy make a difference? Yes, I think it did. You know, let's be honest, whether we voted for Trump or didn't like Trump, the truth of the matter is that for two to three years, Trump has been saying the economy was doing well. And I suspect, though Leslie may disagree with this, that if this election had been held last year at this time, Trump would have been in a much stronger position because he would have fought the election not in the context of the pandemic, but in the context of a bull economy and a bull stock market. And that would have made it much more difficult for Joe Biden to have at least come close to winning. And that brings us back to the pandemic. And this is really my last point. In the end, the president tried to keep the pandemic off the agenda, but there's no doubt that I think this has made any huge difference. In the end, uh, subjectively, partly because of what Leslie's described, which is, of course, the voting by post, which has clearly worked for the Democrats. But secondly, it's a question of competence. You know, however much Trump says, well, we couldn't, we, we've done our best. You know, the numbers of deaths in America today, tragic figure that Leslie just brought up, still tells us there's a fundamental problem of competence in this administration. And I think that must have played into the ultimate decisions that the American people are currently making. You know, another thing to... We all know it, but I think we just have to kind of remind ourselves. The power of the incumbency is you cannot overstate it. Mm. There have only been three U.S. presidents that have mm. lost their bid for re-election. Hoover, Carter, and George Bush Sr. That's mm. it. President Ford was never elected in the first place, but only three. So the reality that it looks very much like President Trump, who has had, as, as Professor Cox said, for most of his presidency, a very strong economy who delivered tax cuts and deregulation and corporate tax cuts and has had a steady, if minority base, but at around 40%. The fact that he is looking very much like he's on track to lose re-election is remarkable in a context where people vote sitting presidents back into a second term as a matter of course. It's also the case, and you know, I, I'm not sure if this is the same in the UK or not, but it's a big deal to go into a voting booth or to post a ballot. If you are a Republican and you've always been a Republican, it's a big, big deal to vote for a Democratic president and vice versa. I mean, those are loyalties that even today run very, very deep. So some of the voting is just, you know, I might not like the president's style, I might not kind of like what he's doing, but this is a pandemic. It was going to be tough no matter who was in charge. 
We're going to get back on track. There's going to be a vaccination. And I am a Republican and my grandfather was a Republican and my great grandfather was a Republican and I'm, I have to vote Republican. So, you know, that's a really important part of this. You know, Trumpism, this is a really interesting topic. We are going to be drilling down on this for decades. I think, you know, I'm not so sure. I think there's a lot going on right here. I think that we have to be really careful about just kind of going Trumpism and assuming that it means any number of things. It's different. Somebody said to me on Twitter yesterday, isn't it kind of the same as Thatcherism? Like you have Trumpism, you have Thatcherism, but it's not actually because Trumpism preceded Trump. You know, when we say Trumpism, we're often talking about the people, not just the president. It's a, I think it's a really complicated term, but I think it's one we're going to have to unpack and really, really, in fact, there's there's a lot to be written but, on. But my point, my point, Leslie, if I could just jump in there. I mean, I, I don't quite know what the ism means, and I agree with you, it's problematic. But it still means that you know, millions of Americans have voted for Trump, even after this pandemic, and even after many of the things that he said, which made them probably disapprove of. It's simply a reality that any president who now comes in, and let's just for the moment assume it's Biden, is going to have to deal with that. My point was that I think Joe Biden has positioned himself pretty well to try and build a bridge over to those who clearly voted for Trump in this election. That was my main point, really. And that, I think that is absolutely key. And I couldn't agree with Professor Cox more. There's no doubt that the line that Vice President Biden has taken, not only during his campaign and especially last night, but throughout his time as a leader in one form or another in America, whether it was vice president in the Senate, he has been a person that looks to strike bipartisan deals, to Mm. broker compromises, to lead coalitions, And quite frankly, you know, President Obama was much less of that kind of leader, Mm -hmm. right? He didn't really like to go out and and build the bridges. He found it, you know, he's very intellectual and cerebral. And I think he found it a little bit tiring when people didn't understand (laughs) what was right. Mm -hmm. And I think think Vice President Biden is well positioned. I mean, it's a tough call, right? It's a high Mm -hmm. bar but he's well positioned for what he likely faces. We don't know. I mean, uh, Professor Cox is exactly right. It looks like it might be a Republican Senate, but we've just now seen news that there's likely to be a runoff or at least one Senate seat in Georgia, possibly two. If that happens, you know, we might not have a Republican Senate and that's going to take actually quite a long time to play out. The other thing I would say is, you know, if there is a Republican Senate, uh, this is a tough argument to make, but I think there's there's something to the idea that in a country that is so polarized, it's not obvious that it's a good thing, especially given the pandemic, the economic crisis, the devastation that, that President Trump has overseen socially in the country. It's not obvious that it's a good thing to kind of wipe off the map, the feeling of being represented in Washington, mm. all the people that voted for Donald Trump. Having a Republican mm-hmm. Senate, you know, there's there's something in that for the people, no matter how hard it makes governance. Obviously, Chatham House is very much involved with thinking about international affairs. I wondered whether there's any sign that foreign policy figured in this election at all. Yeah. And maybe also if we broaden it out, just to think about regardless of who wins and what the result is, what do we think the foreign policy challenges and and the priorities should be for the US as we come into 2021. What is the next president going to have on the table? Sorry, Ben, didn't mean to interrupt you there. And I'll just jump in quick and then obviously Leslie will follow up. Sure. And I think Leslie and I may agree on this one. 
you can see what's happened to the United States over the last four years, perceptions of the United States, positive perceptions of the United States and to President Trump, you know, I mean, it's gone down. It's gone down dramatically, particularly amongst natural allies in, in Europe and in Asia. A lack of reliability, you know, criticisms of the EU, earlier statements against NATO, talking America first, America first, making America great again, doesn't say, doesn't talk much about the transatlantic relationship. We know that relations with the EU are very difficult. R- relations with Germany have become very, very difficult. So I suppose the first and most obvious thing, because we're, we're living in Europe, geographically, if we're not members of the EU. Nonetheless, I think on the transatlantic side, it looks to me very, very positive indeed. And and more generally, I think on international accords, international agreements, treaties, I think there's a big change. And obviously climate change, which is one of the big factors, there's going to be, a, it seems to me, a very, very different US approach to climate change. Moreover, I think more generally, a lot of people around the world, not everybody, maybe if I was in Moscow now and I'm Mr. Putin, I may have a very different view of what's going on. But, you know, I mean, I think basically a kind of general relief if President Trump were finally to lose, about which we, we still don't know the final outcome. So I think overall, therefore, I'm bound to say this, aren't I, that I think it is and we're not going to go back to normal, but it's going to be, for at least for the Europeans, and I think for many allies in Asia, a much better thing. I'd also say, however, two things. I think he will remain tough. Biden will remain tough on two key questions. One is Russia, and the other one is China. I mean, I think the American America has flipped on China over the last four years, quite clearly, and not just Trump. And I think in spite of some of the ambiguities of Trump's relationship with Russia, some of the statements he's made, I think American opinion is quite clearly, let us put it bluntly, in the anti-Russia camp. So I think on Russia and China, and also on Iran, by the way, I still think we're going to see a pretty robust US position. I don't know if you agree with that, Leslie. I do agree with that. I mean, I think that's exactly right. America's going to be much tougher on the big political issues And it's going to change, uh, assuming a President Biden administration and administration uh, on the question of climate. I mean, I think the thing, the frame I would add, and and I really agree with what Professor Cox has said, and it's implicit in what he said, Mm. uh, which is um, the values question is going to change, right? We're going to feel like Europe and America are back on the same page. There's going to be a lot of details to work out. You know, are our interests perfectly aligned? We agree on the strategy, but the values question is going to be transformed literally overnight, right? On day one, a vice president Biden's president Biden, you know, leadership uh, period. That's a, that's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. He's going to take America right back into Paris. He has a two trillion dollar climate plan for investing in climate friendly policies in the United States, which will have tremendous global implications. China is going to get a run for its money. China right now is trying to claim the mantelpiece of being the global leader on climate. America is going to be right back in the game. And let's hope that America and China, together with Europe, can work together on that. The second area where we're going to really feel the values question is on all those big questions of democracy and human rights. And, you know, the devil is in the detail in terms of how do you do democracy promotion How do you push for human rights? And those details are going to be really, really tricky, especially because of the confrontation between America and China. Europe might face difficult choices. America's gonna face difficult choices, but democracy and human rights are Mm. going to be 
injected right back into the rhetoric of the American president. And we're not going to know what to think because we've spent four years listening to a president who disregards those values every time he speaks almost. So, you know, it, it really is going to take a little bit of adjustment because four years is a long time to be on the receiving end of the of President Trump's international rhetoric. But we're going to see, you know, that back and we're going to see a commitment to diplomacy like we haven't seen for several years. And that is all transformative, even though the big issues are going to be really tough. China, Iran, and any any number of other regional security problems aren't going to be easy to fix. Mm. Uh, and America's going to have a tough job renegotiating trade rules uh, at a time when Americans are, you know, very aware of the complexity of trade. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it's still going to be very different. I'll, I'll just jump in there very quickly. I know time might sure. be out. But I think in some ways, Trump has made it more difficult to create a, a global consensus among, say, the Europeans and, and the Americans and North Americans, and even his Asian allies on key questions, because it's America first. Whereas I think Biden, and this is not just, I mean, no doubt his foreign policy will run into all sorts of snags and difficulties. Who knows? We, we, we can't anticipate what's going to happen. On the other hand, I think he's going to be in a better position to build coalitions with the Europeans and, and with other allies in Asia, of course, not to be forgotten, on some of those key questions we're talking about, you know, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on trade, whether it's on how to deal with China. Because at the moment, there is, fortunately or unfortunately, and I won't go into the reasons why, there is a quite a strong anti-Trump feeling running out there in large parts of Western Europe. It's a little less different in places like Hungary and, and Poland, I know. But there is an anti-Trump feeling. And anything Trump says is therefore discounted. Oh, that's Trump. I think once one gets a, a president in whom one might believe, or at least agree with, on the values question, as you say, Leslie, I think that's so important for you to stress that, and I agree with you entirely. Then I think it's going to be much easier to build a proper coalition, a consensus, on a broader strategy towards Russia, towards China, and probably also towards Iran, although that's going to be a much more difficult one to sell, I think, given the nature of the Middle East problem. And we're going to come towards the end now. I just wanted to ask maybe a final question on, on that, which is over the last four years, there has been commentary, article after article, talking mm -hmm. about whether this is the end of US global leadership and the rules-based international order. I just wondered, just as a sort of final word from each of you, whether you think that we are really entering a new phase in terms of, in terms of international relations in this sense, a multipolar world where the US has to build coalitions rather than really just sort of making decisions and taking the lead? Or is that a role that there is still room for the US to kind of reclaim? Mm. There's two separate questions. One is, it's the old, old question about American power in the world, and is it in decline? Something I've been writing about for 20 years, and I've broadly speaking taken the same position for some years. <laughs> Not fashionable, I know. To say that America's structural power still remains enormous, whether it's the dollar, whether it's the size of its market, the innovation, it's you know all the things, the military power. The one thing it's lost over the last four years has been its soft power dramatically so. And again, we get back to that, Leslie, using an IR terminology, you know, I think we're going to see a reconstitution of a soft power that has been lost. And I think that will actually work for America's influence within the world, not just the telling people what to do, but people actually listening to what you're saying. Followers will now follow with, I think, greater degrees of enthusiasm, which has been very difficult to do with the Trump presidency. 
On the other hand, we are moving in towards a more multipolar world. I mean, you know, to say what I've just said is not to deny huge economic changes taking place in the world. All my friends in Asia tell me this all the time, and they're quite right to do so. You know, Asia is now a key part of the world economy. China is going to remain a key part of the world economy, and it's going to grow in influence. So we are moving into a, a more multi polar world. And let me just also add, being a good old realist, as Leslie knows that I am really, deep down, we're also going to face a series of very unpleasant threats over the coming period. We've seen these in France. We've seen these right across Europe recently. You know, let's not get away. There's, there's, There's still a lot of nasty things out there which are going to threaten us all across the world, not just in the United States or in Europe. And I think we've got to keep a very close eye on, on those underlying dangerous threats which still challenge the international order. Michael, thank you. Leslie, would you like to come in with the last word? Yeah, I think I think we're really aligned, actually. Um, the, I do think that America's structural power remains enormous, that its soft power has been really dramatically undercut for the last several years, that that will begin to be restored, that I think America's always had to lead in partnership with others. It's going to have to work a little bit harder, quite a lot harder, to make that partnership make sense. But if you look across the world, Obviously, China has extraordinary power and capability and is a challenger. It's a leader in many ways. But there aren't a lot of other democracies that can replace the U.S. as a global leader. And if you think democracy still matters, and if you think that the world's democracies still care about democracy, then I think that you know that pretty much answers the question that America is going to keep leading. Because when faced with a choice, people might want access to the Chinese market, they might want to trade, to do business, to travel, it's extraordinarily interesting culture. But at the end of the day, when you're kind of thinking about what do you trust and what makes you feel safe, Mm. I think that if America can get its act back together, that's still gonna be the best act in town for leadership amongst Western democracies. Leslie, thank you. And that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope that we can have you both back on in the future as the dust settles and we can get more into those kind of bigger questions about about the impact of this race. In the meantime, listeners, if you want to find out more about the US's foreign policy priorities in particular, there is a fantastic multi-author report that was just out last week. It's available free to download on the Chatham House website now. Leslie, Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you very much, Leslie. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Matt. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Undercurrents. If you want to find out more about the US elections, then there is plenty of analysis on the Chatham House website now. And you can follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. I just thought I would tell you at the end of this episode about a new mini-series that we're publishing next week, which will be coming out from the 9th of November, where myself and colleagues from the International Security Programme at Chatham House are going to be talking about governing cyberspace, essentially how states are attempting to regulate the internet and ensure that cyberspace remains a safe place for society at large. should be really interesting. We've got five episodes in the series and they will all be published next week from the 9th of November until the 13th of November. 
And then after that, we will be returning to the normal programming of undercurrents, as you might expect. We've got some fantastic topics lined up for you in the coming weeks. Really excited to share those with you. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. You've been listening to Undercurrents. Undercurrents.